0: We'll turn to Matthew's Gospel, because we're in Advent. My guitar is not wanting to cooperate with me today. Um, we're jumping around a little bit, and uh, those uh, texts that Mark read, we'll be jumping to those uh, in the course of the sermon. We're continuing our series of Jesus the Son, and this morning we're going to talk about Jesus the Son of a Woman. And uh, I guess it's appropriate that uh, all of the the poinsettias are encompassed around me. I feel like my space is being encroached upon up here. Um, All right, Matthew, chapter 2. It has been a very distracting week for me uh, on a number of fronts. Um, So uh, may God bring my distraction and your distraction together such that uh, we are able to to hear his word this morning, and why am I not able to see the difference between Matthew and Malachi? So, I don't know. Let me remind myself here. As I said, it's been a distracting week. All right, 18 to 23. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... When Joseph woke from the dream, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your mercies to us in Christ Jesus, one of which we see right here that he saves us from our sins. This morning we present ourselves to you as living sacrifices. Uh, to hear your word, and so we forsake our other agendas for your agenda in the next few minutes. Transform us by the renewing of our minds so that we are not conformed to the world, but are conformed to the likeness of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. So Amy has been Kind of mentioning to me periodically last month or so, what about that show? This is us. And so uh, she started to watch it on her own, and this week we've started watching it together, and uh, we've been binge watching uh, the last couple of days. And um, don't worry, that won't be giving any spoiler alerts. No need for spoiler alerts today. Um, but really, it focuses on uh, some people who share the same birthday. And and what they all have in common is trying to figure out who they are. And so, it, in many ways, uh, it's not about the, you know, it's not a sitcom-y kind of thing or just drama about um, events so much as who these people really are, why they do the things they do, and the effect of their past on the present and perhaps on the future. And there's one character in particular by the name of Randall. And what Randall does is he is adopted. And there's a longing within him to connect to his biological parents, that he might somehow find out more of who he is. Because Randall is a black man who was raised in a white family. And Randall finds his father and begins this awkward journey, and we'll see where it goes, Of finding out who this man is and how much of who this man is affects who he is, even though he had never met him before. I like this show. Not just because I have two kids who are adopted, well, three kids who are adopted, but it's because spiritually we all can struggle with the same kinds of questions. Why am I the way I am? Why do I long for something very different? And how do I live in between those two places? I think that what we're going to talk about this morning helps us Unpack some of that. At least that's my hope. Our big idea this morning is that the son of a woman came to grant salvation and sonship. Let's start with the Matthew narrative and recognize that his was a unique birth for a unique role. The birth of Jesus was a unique birth so that he might fulfill a unique role. Matthew notes for us that there was once this righteous man by the name of Joseph. And Joseph was engaged or betrothed to a woman named Mary. And you might remember from any number of uh, Advent sermons that you have heard in the past, uh, that for them... Betrothal was far more meaningful and significant than engagement is for us. You were treated as if you were already husband and wife, even though you had not consummated the marriage through ceremony. And so, while they were only betrothed, they still were spoken of as husband and wife. It could not be as easily broken off as our engagements can be broken off today. It was far more rigid of a system. And so imagine what it was like when Joseph found that she was found with child. Now the text tells us from the get-go that she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. But Joseph, of course, Didn't know that. All he knows is the woman I'm to marry with whom I have not lain is pregnant with someone's child and it's not mine. And now it's important that we keep in mind that Joseph was a righteous man. And so Joseph wants to end this relationship with this immoral woman from his perspective. But he wants to do it as well in a very compassionate way, not exposing her to public disgrace, because the actions for which she, in his mind, would have been guilty for this to take place ordinarily would mean that she should be stoned. And so he seeks to divorce her, to release her from the betrothal vows that they have already taken. And that is when the angel appears to him in the midst of a dream and tells him, in fact, that this is a child, that she is with child, precisely because this is from the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit who conceived of this child in the womb, obviously had to have given faith to Joseph, because who would believe that? Apart from the miracle or the the grace of faith. So filled in, he also was told that you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, that's significant, not just in the sense of The last part, he will save his people from his sins, but the idea of you will call his name Jesus. What does that mean? That means Joseph is to adopt this child that is not his own. That is the significance of the fact you shall call him this. You shall take him as your own son. You shall raise him as your own son. Though he is not your son. You will call him Jesus. You will call him Joshua. You will call him the Lord saves because he is the one that the Lord has sent to save his people. But what's going on here? And while Matthew quotes from Isaiah, we're going to go farther back. We're going farther back to Genesis 3 to try and understand this. Let's rewind to the Garden of Eden, where there is a serpent who comes who deceives Eve so that she continues to look at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and she begins to see that the fruit is pleasing to the eye and in her mind, therefore, delicious to the body and deceived by the serpent, she takes of the fruit, she eats of the fruit and gives it to Adam so that he can eat. Do you want to know where you're from? that you are, you are a child who was born into and for deception and rebellion through Adam. That's where you came from. As we watch this show this weekend, we see more and more deception revealed in the lives of these characters the truths they've never been told, the, tru- the lies that they've believed, that they've told themselves, and the damage that they create. And it's not just because they are children of their parents. It's because they are children of Adam and Eve. God then showed up. Adam and Eve not wanting to meet with God because now they know something of their sin, they know something of their guilt, they know something of their shame because they have clothed themselves. They hear God, they hide in the bushes, and instead of God just walking on by, I mean, he knows exactly where they are, he finds them out and addresses them. He knows exactly what has happened, and yet he asks them these questions so that he might draw forth from them confessions as to what they've done, that they, in fact, might cry out for mercy instead of running from wrath. In a sense, he's like a good parent, And, of course, what they do when they confess their sin is not so much take responsibility for their actions, but they all blame someone else. Adam says, The woman you gave me. She gave me the fruit and I ate it. And she, of course, says, I was deceived by the serpent. And so they struggled with truth-telling right from the get-go, As a result of this, as God begins to address each person in their sinfulness and give them the penalties that they shall receive, he begins with the serpent whom he did not question. He begins with the serpent who deceived Eve. And he gives us the very first of the gospel promises in the Bible. We see it there. I will put enmity or hatred between you and the woman, and between your offspring or seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so there's going to be a conflict that continues through the ages between the woman and the serpent between her offspring and the offspring or seed of the serpent. And the idea here is that there will, this will culminate in one person. And this one person, though he, his heel is bruised, he will crush or bruise the head of the serpent. And so the serpent will receive just punishment for using his Superior intellect and deceiving the woman. And the woman shall be vindicated despite her sin. God was going to judge the serpent's seed through the woman's seed in order to save Adam's race, his fallen but chosen race. So we see, if we fast forward back to Matthew chapter 2, or chapter 1, rather, what we see is that Jesus is born of a woman, but he's born without a man. Sounds kind of odd. There's two things that we, we need to recognize through this. Born of a woman, he's fully human, he's a man. He's not an angel, he's not a space alien, he's, not anything he's a man, because he needs to be a man. But he's not born in an ordinary way, he doesn't have a man for a father, because he's not going to be under the headship of Adam. Because he is going to be the only person who has ever been born who did not share in the corruption and the guilt of Adam's sin. Because the only way that he can save his people from their sins is if he has none of his own. If he is able to walk perfectly before the Father in all righteousness, and no one can if they have Adam as their head. As we talked about last week. And so we see that the reason the Son of God appeared, according to John three first John three eight was to destroy the works of the devil. And so this Jesus is going to destroy the works of the devil first by being tempted in the wilderness, just as Eve was tempted, though, in a garden. But instead of being deceived like Eve and, be, and rebelling like Adam, he is going to remain faithful remain obedient, that he might gain righteousness, that he can then share with his people instead of keeping to himself. And so Jesus was uniquely born for the unique role of saving God's people from their sin. Secondly, let's see, that Jesus was sent to live under law to redeem those who were under law. And now we're going to fast-forward from Matthew. See, this is, this is the problem I have at home right now. Okay? We watch most of our stuff on DVR, and I love that little jump-ahead button. I hate commercials. But we're what we had to do on demand for this show, and I keep, whenever it's a commercial time, I want to press fast-forward. Can't do it. But we're fast-forwarding to Galatians here. Okay? This is, this is a first-world problem, definitely a first-world problem. Fast forward into Galatians where we see in chapter 4 that Paul announces that when the fullness of time had come, when, the, when the, the time and the conditions were right, God acted. God did not act too soon. God did not act too late. But God acted at the perfect time, which was the time he prepared for everything that was going to happen. He prepared the world for the advent of the Savior through the Roman Empire, the Pax Romana, with its building of roads so that people could travel much more freely. The Pax Romana, which followed the Hellenization of the region, which meant that everyone could speak the same language. They had their own local language, but most people also spoke Greek. And so these conditions enabled the spread of the gospel that would take place from backwoods Jerusalem to the whole Roman Empire. He comes too soon you stuck in Jerusalem. You come too late, there is no Jerusalem. Because remember, the Romans destroyed it in 70 AD. So in the fullness of time, the proper time, what happens? We see that God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And so God creates these circumstances and then works in and through these circumstances for his gospel purposes. And the main gospel purpose here is that the Son would be born. Now, Catch that. He sent his Son. The Son already existed. Jesus had a pre-existence to when he was born in the manger by Mary. He eternally was the Son of God, but now the Father says, go to save humanity, go into the womb of a woman, go and be a man, and the Son goes. The birth of Jesus was not accidental, it was not an act of rebellion on the part of the Son, it's not the Son trying to placate the Father and say, well, you can love these people as some... Might imagine, and some have sort of tried to teach. The Father and the Son were working together for this great plan. And so the, the, the Father sends the Son to be born of a woman. And as we said, taking on full humanity through Mary that he might be the Messiah. Now, what's interesting to me here is that Paul doesn't say her name. Don't you find that kind of odd? Because we have some people who um, really, you know, Scripture does portray Mary as a great example of a woman. And yet some people have kind of made Mary into someone to worship or venerate. Paul doesn't do that. Paul keeps the focus where the focus belongs, and that is the Son who took on flesh. But, by, but he, he introduces this with a phrase, I think, that should remind us of Genesis 3. I think that's in Paul's mind by the Holy Spirit as he dictates this to his amanuasis. we see Jesus in his full humanity is born under the law. What's interesting as we think about that concept of Jesus being born under under the law is that, of course, uh, Galatians is written to people who have had some false teachers come in and they're saying, hey, you Gentiles, yeah, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to do a few things. You need to be circumcised, and you need to begin to practice the law. If you want to be really saved, that's what you need to do. And so, here Paul talk, inter, reintroduces the idea of law, this thing that they're elevating, that they might see that the real thing is Jesus not the law. But Jesus is born under the law. Jesus is going to live in obedience to the law. But Paul has introduced it in the previous verses as a guardian or instructor. And he's building upon the uh, Hellenistic notion that uh, This might be attractive to some of us, um, that your sons are not necessarily raised by you, but they're raised by a guardian, right? Tim, does he ever frustrate you? Do you ever wish that there was someone else who was raising him? (laughs) I'm sure you wish there was someone else raising you, right? <laughs> In moments. In moments. That's what would happen. But here's Paul's point. Even though he's the heir, even though he owns everything by virtue of being an heir, he's treated like a slave. That's hard for us to imagine, but think, think with me. Put on your comic book heads for a moment. Bruce Wayne. Good old Batman. When he was still a kid, after his parents had been, uh, had been murdered, Bruce Wayne was the heir of the entire Wayne Enterprises. He was one of the richest kids in the world, but guess what? He had to listen to Alfred the Butler, who was his guardian. He had to do what Alfred said, not what he wanted to do. And so, though he was an heir and Alfred wasn't, Alfred was in authority over Bruce. And that is the notion that Paul is introducing for us. That in its infancy, as a, as Israel, they were under the law as a guardian over them to instruct them in righteousness so that when the fullness came, they would be free Because they've already been trained as to what righteousness is. For instance, we see here, solid food in Hebrews 5 is for the mature, for those who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. They're supposed to be, uh, the, the law has taught us that which is right and that which is wrong, and then as adults we're intended to kind of walk in that to be informed by that so that we're making choices with a clear conscience as opposed to a confused sort of conscience. And so Jesus is born, he is born under the law. He learned righteousness from the law let 's remember Jesus has two natures. Jesus humbled himself and was obedient and part of that humble that humility and that obedience is he, as a man he learned obedience from the law. It talks about in, uh, in Luke chapter 3, after the whole thing where, you know, he, he hung, after Passover, he hung out at the temple, and his parents were like, where in the world is he? And they find him, all that kind of stuff. It's, Luke says after that, he grew in what? Wisdom and stature. Jesus didn't know everything six seconds after he was born. He learned wisdom and righteousness, and he learned it from the law. Now, when Luther talks about this, he makes it sound like Jesus is oppressed by the law, that Jesus was tyrannized by the law. And it's like, no, 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 you see, that would be me, because I don't want to do what the law says. And so I feel constrained by the law. I feel terrorized by the law. But Jesus, because he did not share in the corruption of Adam, rejoiced in the law. His mindset is more like we saw in Psalm 19 and in Psalm 119, where he sees the law as good and perfect and beautiful. And rejoiced in it. He didn't chafe against the law like you and I. But he delighted in it because he was righteous. And as much as we are righteous, we rejoice in the law. So Jesus is not terrified by the law, but he learns righteousness from it. It's in a sense the ABCs or the grammar of the law. You see, when you master your ABCs and you, you master your grammar, then you're able to freely communicate with other people. Right? You can write stories filled with you know, your imagination creating whole new worlds because you have learned the basics of language and now are able to communicate. There was a piano recital here the other night and these poor children learned how to play chords and learned about theory and all of these things they suffered through the boredom and the tyranny of their piano teacher back there hiding in the kitchen okay why did they learn this why did they suffer under her whip (laughs) she doesn't whip them don't worry right Katie so that they would be able to play beautiful pieces of music and possibly even create their own beautiful pieces of music. But they could never do that if they'd never first submitted to the discipline of learning how to play piano. So the law was intended to teach us what it means to be free people who are righteous people. But because we're not righteous people, there's a problem. And so Jesus came to redeem those who were under the law. He came to save us from the problem that our sin creates with regard to the law. To save us from sin includes to redeem us from its penalty or curse which is what Paul had talked about earlier in chapter 3 of Galatians, that he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And so we see both the active and the passive obedience of Jesus in this. He comes under the under the law to actively obey the law so that he is perfectly righteous, so that when he dies, he's not dying for his sin, he's dying for the sin of others as a covenant head. And so we see that Jesus, the son of the woman, deals not only with the serpent to crush his head, but he also deals with our sin and Adam's sin as our Redeemer. And so because we were under the law, Jesus was born under the law in order to redeem us. Thirdly, the Father takes slaves and enemies as beloved children through Jesus. You see, redemption, this idea of buying back, you see, it can refer to both slaves and it can refer to criminals. We see that a price is paid. We tend to think of this the, the backwards way. We, um, at least not in this state, but in the Northeast or California, you you pay a little extra money when you buy something that's in a can or a bottle. And then you get to redeem it. You bring it back to a redemption center and you get your money back from the government. Okay? Um, they buy back the can. I don't know why they buy back the can. <laughs> okay. Jesus is going to buy back people. And there's two ways of thinking about the people he buys back. One of them is as slaves, and the other is as criminals. So for slaves, a price is paid for their freedom from bondage. We see that Jesus redeemed people who were slaves to sin. He buys them back so that they can be free. For criminals, a price is paid to redeem their life because it is forfeit, and so Jesus lays down his life to purchase God's enemies' lives back. That's what we see. The price in both instances here is his life, his life which was offered on the cross. But we see that redemption is not everything. Hold on a second here. Wow, yeah. I guess fix that later. The gospel doesn't stop at redemption. As great and as glorious as, as redemption, as forgiveness of sin might be, that's not the apex of redemption. It continues. The glory of the gospel is that so that we might receive adoption as sons. In other words, this is what's happening. Jesus is taking traitors, enemies, slaves, rebels, and he's making them sons and heirs. Not just free, sons and heirs. Many of us are familiar with the story of Spartacus. Spartacus was a man uh, who, his country had been conquered by the Romans. He, therefore, had been enslaved, and the particular form his slavery took was that he was made a gladiator to fight in the Colosseum. And what Spartacus did is that he ended up leading a rebellion. So we see that Spartacus is a slave, Spartacus is a rebel, And what had ended up happening, of course, is that Spartacus was hunted down and killed. But imagine for a moment if Caesar instead hunted uh, Spartacus down and sat down with him and said, "Spartacus, I I have an offer for you. Come, be my son. Come, share my home. Come, be my heir." My wrath against you has been has been removed. I want you to leave this life of rebellion. I want you to leave the fear that you experience because you're being hunted down. I want you to know the love of a father again. I want you to know the freedom of a son again. I want you to know the wealth of all of my riches instead of the poverty that you experience now. That's what happens in the gospel. The father says, don't just be my friend. Be my son. Be my child. Be my heir. And when we, by faith, are united to Jesus Christ, something else happens. We see that... that, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. The same God who sent the Son to be born of a woman to redeem us who were under the law also sends the Spirit of that same Son, the Holy Spirit, to apply the work of salvation so that we learn to live like sons in the freedom and joy and provision of sons. I don't think we understand that very well. Christian maturity is when our practical lives get closer and closer to our positional lives. If you ever adopt orphans, what you often experience is that they hoard things because they're used to not having things and they're not sure when the next meal is going to come. And so it takes them time to learn that, yeah, these new people that have taken me in that I'm not sure I trust because they look different and sound different than me, they feed me every day. It takes them a while to learn that. To, to come out of a, an orphan mentality and into the freedom of sons and daughters. It takes time. And when you become a Christian, particularly if you become a Christian at an older age like myself, it takes time to learn what it means like to walk as a son of God as opposed to the rebellious slave that you had been for so many years. It takes time to get the I-must-earn-it mentality out. The the religious attitude of I-must-do in order to receive from God and to live consistently by the idea that it is by grace. It is because of what Christ has done, not what I do, that I experience these blessings and so that I am consistently more grateful, but also consistently want to please my Father. Not to receive, but because I have received. As a token of, Of gratitude for the great salvation that he has given us. And so, unfortunately, brothers and sisters, we often struggle with gospel amnesia. We forget who we are, we forget we're sons, and we go back to living as slaves. Doesn't mean we actually become slaves, but it means we live like slaves. In this TV show, we see that Randall's not the only one trying to figure out who he is. Kevin and Kate also struggle with who they are. And they have these moments. Kevin's an actor. And basically, the reason he has the show that he's on that makes him a really good wage is because he looks really good without his shirt on. He has six-pack abs, baby but he realizes this is not who I want to be. I want to be an actor, not a guy who walks around with a shirt off in a sitcom. And so he struggles with that. And his sister struggles with who she is. Because she basically has only known who she is because she is his identical twin sister and she's been along for the ride with the beautiful man and doesn't know who she is apart from him. We all struggle with who we are. And the answer is only found in Jesus Christ. We struggle with guilt. We struggle with doubts. We struggle in our our afflictions. And what Paul says here is meant to apply to us in these things. When we live as a slave, what we do is we try to deal with our guilt, our doubts, our afflictions on our own. But what Paul is saying here is that he sends the Spirit into our hearts precisely so we cry out, "'Abba, Father!' This is not the only place Paul talks about this. Romans 8, he says almost the identical thing. Because when you know you're a son and you're in trouble, who do you look to? Dad! You cry out, Dad, I need help. Dad, I'm confused. Dad, I need you. And it is the Holy Spirit who produces that within us. So that regardless of what we're dealing with, whether it's the guilt, the doubts, the afflictions, we are crying out to our Heavenly Father because we have been adopted through Jesus Christ and we seek the resolution of those things from Him and not on our own. Because we're sons. Because we're heirs. Because there's nothing he'd rather do than help his children. That's why Jesus came. So like the characters in This Is Us, we we really struggle, I think, a lot of times, more than we want to let on to everyone else, that we struggle with who we are. We struggle with why we do what we do. We, we struggle with uh, why we wish we were someone else. And our answers are not to be found in looking at our parents. They're not to be found in looking at our family of origin. They are found in Christ. Who, for us and for our salvation, was born of a woman who became like us in that he was born under the law, in order to redeem us from the curse of the law, but also to make us co-heirs, to share all of the good stuff he had with us. The Christian life is learning to live like a son when you're used to living like a slave and a rebel. It's about learning to live in grace instead of depending upon your own resources and depending on your own record, which is spotty at best. We better pray. Father, I thank you for Paul who keeps pointing us to Jesus, who keeps reminding us of the incredible heights of the gospel that reach to the depths of our soul. The reality of the gospel that you have sent the Son to make us sons. And that you have given us the Spirit so that we will cry out to you as sons. So Father, I I ask that we would come to a greater understanding of this. And not just understanding, but experience of this. to really know what it means to have You as our Father, so that we would indeed be set free from so many of our worries and cares and concerns, so that we can live. So that we can live with joy, we can live with purpose, we can live without fear. We can live in trust. And Father, this is only something that happens as the Holy Spirit works so that our our minds are renewed and we are transformed. So transform us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.